This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Welcome back to another great show. Strap in, hold on tight. We got another rapid fire coming your way. And who other than Dr. Mike Fralick to carry us through four articles today, as per usual? Let's jump right in. As always, Mike, take us through the articles that you chose for this week. For sure. So the first one is um, published in the New England, January 2018, entitled uh, Adjunctive Glucocorticoid Therapy in Patients with Septic Shock by Dr. Venkatesh et al. Somehow that magically turns into the acronym of ADRENAL, which will be very helpful for what this study's about. Aha, creative acronym creation. I've tried it myself. It's very difficult. Tell us, Mike, what's the research question? The question here is, does hydrocortisone reduce mortality among patients with septic shock? And why is this important? Well, I think there's conflicting evidence. Um, There's a small randomized trial over a decade ago, which might have shown some benefit for giving steroids in patients who are in septic shock despite being on pressors. And then there was a modest size randomized trial just over five years ago that was negative. And as a result, the guidelines are kind of sitting on the fence. And specifically, the guidelines are to you know, recommend hydrocortisone in patients who have septic shock and have been fluid resuscitated and are on vasopressors but still aren't hemodynamically stable, there is weak, low-quality evidence to recommend um, steroids. Okay. And a very recent Cochrane review just came out recommending steroids in severe community-acquired pneumonia. So let's find out what this trial has to say about steroids in septic shock. Tell us, Mike, take us through the study design. How did they go about answering this question? Yeah, so this is a double-blind, randomized controlled trial conducted in Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, among other countries. And patients with septic shock who were also being mechanically ventilated were randomized to receive um, hydrocortisone 200 milligrams a day for seven days or placebo, and 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone per day is approximately 50 milligrams of prednisone once a day. The primary outcome here was a very clean one of mortality at 90 days. They had a lot of secondary endpoints, one of which was death from any cause at 28 days, and some other, you know, definitely clinically relevant secondary endpoints. I think what was great up front is the way they defined septic shock. These were patients that either had documented or strong suspicion for infection based on SERS criteria, and they were on vasopressors for at least four hours, and they were mechanically ventilated. These were very sick patients, and there were very few exclusion criteria as well, apart from just if patients had another reason to be getting steroids, they couldn't be randomized into the study. And the other exclusion criteria being patients who had an overall, you know, presumed mortality of, you know, less than 90 days sort of post-hospitalization. Right. They want the very, very sick individuals to see if they'll they'll benefit. Now, what about how long they've had the septic shock for, the duration of shock before they're randomized to receive steroids? Is that part of their inclusion criteria or selection? Yeah, so generally they sort of set a time window of 24 hours and they did some great secondary analyses because it's really important to think, well, when were those steroids started? So they did some nice secondary analyses looking at, you know, patients who are randomized within six hours versus 18 hours, etc. Okay, shock us. What were the results? Um, So to give you a sense of what the patients looked like here, this was 3,800 patients, average age being 63, 60% were male, approximately a third had pneumonia. Uh, 99% were on norepinephrine, and another third, one-third were on a second presser. 
and 13% were on renal replacement therapy. Very, very sick patients. On average, the time from ICU admission, sorry, to randomization was approximately 24 hours. So the big results here are a negative neutral finding, which is still very important. So at 90 days, 28% um, of individuals in the hydrocortisone group died, as opposed to 29% in the placebo group. And there were some uh, interesting findings as well that came out of this. So we talked about some of the predefined subgroups. Yeah, so take us through those uh, subgroups, Mike. What, what did you find that was of interest there? Um, so whether you looked at men versus women, or if these were um, medical patients or post-op surgical patients, or patients that had been randomized soon after coming into the ICU or not, there was no difference. So even when you looked in these predefined subgroups, there was no obvious benefit to steroids. The one thing that steroids did do is they certainly improved patients' mean arterial pressure by 5 millimeters of mercury, which kind of makes sense with what steroids are meant to do. Uh, a couple other cool results. Fewer patients in the hydrocortisone group uh, than placebo received a blood transfusion. That was interesting. And very similar rates of adverse events, albeit um, higher in the steroids group, but no difference in rates of incidence of bacteremia, which I found interesting. Okay, well, sounds like a well-designed trial. Any significant limitations or concerns you had? Uh, not really. I mean, this is pretty impressive stuff here. The one thing that was sort of concerning on face value was how rare adverse events were. So in the study of, you know, 4,000 almost people, the number of reported adverse events was like 21 in the steroids group and six in the placebo group. That's obviously unbelievable, but it turns out that's a byproduct of this type of design, which was a pragmatic randomized trial. So it isn't the same sort of deep dive into understanding all of the adverse events. But, you know, apart from that, I, I really don't have uh, too many major issues here. All right. So another dive into the world of steroids in shock. Tell us, Mike, what is the take home point from this important trial? Uh, Take-home point, patients with septic shock who are undergoing mechanical ventilation, they're already on a presser, um, they've been fluid resuscitated. Hydrocortisone, it is not associated with improved mortality at 90 days compared to placebo. I don't know if we're ever going to get a study as good or as big as this. Wow. So does this change how you practice? Are you going to, do you routinely give steroids and now you're going to stop? Well, the nice thing for me is that, you know, when the patient's are this sick, the intensivists are the ones that are looking after and resuscitating these patients. So I'm curious to see if this changes what they do at all. But it's, you know, you, you sort of alluded to the recent Cochrane review, which talked about benefit of steroids for patients with community-acquired pneumonia and, you know, Reed Semeniak, a U of T a classmate of mine, um, he was one of the big drivers behind the first meta-analysis on this. Not supported by this study, but of course, that's not the question that they looked um, to answer. So uh, I'm curious to see what, how the intensivists will uh, deal with these results. Yeah, all I can say is thank God for the good old intensivist. All right, Mike, take us to number two. What do you got? All right, so this study uh, kind of gives away what the answer is. So I guess good for rapid fire. Title is worsening renal function and acute heart failure patients undergoing aggressive diuresis um, is not associated with tubular injury. This was published by Dr. Ahmad in January of this year in Circulation. There is a heart failure cardiologist I know and respect who says if you're not getting the creatinine to bump, you're not diuresing your heart failure patients enough. Tell us, Mike, what's the research question here? 
Question here is whether or not with worsening renal function in the setting of aggressive diuresis for acute heart failure, whether or not that diuresis is actually associated with tubular injury. We know the number, the creatinine number might get a little bit worse, but is it act- is there actual tubular injury? And they define that using um, some interesting biomarkers for tubular injury. Yeah, I can think of a variety of reasons why that would be important, but how do you see this as an important study to, to perform? Yeah, I think there's lots of patients who we admit on the inpatient service who come in with heart failure, uh, some of whom also have baseline renal dysfunction. And I think it can be a fine balance to, towards sort of, okay, what is the right dose of Lasix or furosemide for this patient? And it's a little bit unsettling when you're aggressively diuresing them and then the renal function starts worsening, at least from a creatinine standpoint. So I think this is something clinically um, we're faced with this dilemma not infrequently. Absolutely. So it sounds like it's going to be a bit of a challenge to answer this question accurately. What did they do to take us through? Yeah, so it's a, a bit of a mouthful, but essentially this was a secondary analysis of a randomized trial called the ROSE trial. So the ROSE trial involved just shy of 400 patients, and all of these patients got high-dose Lasix, like to the tune of uh, 560 milligrams IV over three days. Wow. And what this study sought to uh, answer, this ROSE randomized trial, was whether or not randomizing people to dopamine or neceratide or placebo might make any difference in the renal function of these patients. So what these investigators were interested in was some of the secondary aims from this study. So in that study, they were measuring 24-hour urine output every day for three days and collecting various urinary markers and serum markers and biomarkers, many of which I've never heard of before, to try to answer the question of whether or not this aggressive diuresis is worsening renal function due to a tubular injury. Right, and these biomarkers are all reflecting of that, so they're trying to measure it in a more accurate way. What is your typical patient from this rose by any other name trial look like? So a 73-year-old white male with ischemic cardiomyopathy, um, you know, multiple medical comorbidities. In this study, the average BNP on presentation was 6,000. And the patients who were presenting with worsening renal function were similar to those who had sort of stable renal function. And these patients were also stable in terms of their baseline medications and baseline biomarkers for possible tubular injury. So no red flags on the on the balance of things. What were the results? He sort of alluded to them in the title. Yeah, so using these biomarkers assessing for renal tubular injury, there was really no evidence of renal tubular injury when you compared the patients that got diuresed and their uh, renal function got worse as opposed to the patients who were also aggressively diuresed and their renal function at least defined by the creatinine stayed stable. So that was really interesting for me to think that, okay, you know, maybe grandma's creatinine is getting a little bit worse, but what's my priority? A number or the patient in front of me? So I I found that interesting. There were some secondary findings that I don't really want to go into because it's a small sample size, but one of their findings was that even among the patients with the worsening renal function, they had a similar 180-day mortality as those who didn't have worsening renal function. So kind of cool. Very interesting. Yeah. And so if we see 
rising creatinine, do they posit any mechanistic explanation as to what's actually going on? Yeah, it's a good question. So at least based on the biomarkers they came up with, it's not that there is a tubular injury. It's not like there's a little bit of, you know, ATN that's going on. It's probably related at a vascular level um, to perfusion. But beyond that hand-waving explanation, um, there isn't a lot more that I could uh, come up with. Leave it to the nephrologists. Okay, any major concerns when you're looking at a subset of a trial? Absolutely. So observational data, you know, albeit from a randomized study, but what they were looking at was completely observational as well. I've never heard of these biomarkers before. I'm told they're valid. I'm told they're good indicators of acute tubular injury, uh, but that's an important question. Whenever you're using a surrogate endpoint, how well does it actually map out to, you know, a true uh, tubular injury, for example, And then the other problem is, you know, 300 some odd patients with 72 hours of urine data. That is very impressive. But there were only 60 some odd people in the worsening renal function group. So it's hard to draw any big conclusions. We're still dealing with a small sample size. All right. So what have we learned from this ROSE subset study? Yeah. So from this uh, ROSE subset study, I think the take home point here is that, you know, Small, moderate worsening of creatinine in the setting of aggressive diuresis for congestive heart failure maybe probably isn't associated with tubular injury and just sort of um, hitting home the important point of not focusing as much on the number and instead, you know, trying to get these patients uh, feeling better um, out of their shortness of breath and euvolemic. Fair enough. I think it's another reassuring lesson about focusing on the patient. But I know that you always do, Mike. You're, even though you're a scientist and a numbers guy, you're certainly an astute clinician when it comes to looking after the patient. All right, my turn. Two uh, articles to cover in a short amount of time. Here we go. The first one looks at the risk of stroke in patients who have short-run atrial tachyarrhythmias. This is by Shinha Yamada in Stroke in October of 2017. And Kieran, before we move on, can I get you to fill out um, an evaluation as a resident for me to that effect for what you just said a minute and a half ago? <laughs> Absolutely. Fives across the board. Okay, perfect. Hire this man. Perfect. And that's weird. Uh, <laughs> so what was the research question for this study? Well, the question, Mike, was whether the presence of short-run atrial tachyarrhythmias, so-called you know, premature atrial contractions or other uh, short-lived tachyarrhythmias, Do they increase the risk of stroke overall? And if they do, can we use our traditional types of risk stratification scores like the CHADS-VAS score to predict stroke risk in these individuals? Okay, that sounds uh, interesting. And why was this important from your standpoint? Well, I think more and more there's a body of evidence that is suggesting that atrial arrhythmias are a spectrum from individual premature atrial complexes all the way to atrial fibrillation. And finding that critical point where somebody's stroke risk increases is not entirely clear. Um, And there's been a lot of good work to try to sort it out, but there's still some equipoise in the literature. And, you know, the CHADS and CHADS-VAS scores that we use are really validated in the setting of atrial fibrillation. But we don't really know how they perform in people who have sort of, let's call it pre-atrial fibrillation. Finally, with the increasing use of devices in this modern age of medicine, as well as frequency of Holter monitoring and other types of cardiac monitoring, we see a lot of these transient uh, atrial tachyarrhythmias 
and only now are we starting to try to figure out the clinical importance of them. So this study tries to at least take a step further in understanding these. Yeah, I got to be honest, when I have patients, you know, on telemetry and, you know, there's some short runs of some supraventricular rhythm, I usually just ignore it, but maybe I shouldn't. So what, what was the study designed to answer this question? Well, so this is an observational study. It's actually using registry data, and it comes from a study that looked at 24-hour Holter monitoring in a, in a population of Taipei veterans uh, in the Taipei Veterans Hospital. And so the original registry is 5,342 subjects who had no known atrial fibrillation or stroke, and those individuals had Holter monitoring between 2002 and 2004. So then they took those individuals who developed short-run atrial tachyarrhythmias, which was defined as episodes of a supraventricular ectopic beat of less than five seconds, and they excluded patients from the registry uh, for their study if they were hospitalized, uh, had a pacemaker, or had known atrial fibrillation. Okay, less than five seconds. That's definitely the duration of the arrhythmias I usually ignore. So um, <laughs> uh, I know what those patients look like on our ward, but what did the patients look like in uh, this study? Well, I think they would look a lot like the patients that look you, you are used to on your ward. So on average, the people who had atrial tachyarrhythmias were about 10 years older than those who were not. And they're sort of, you know, in their 60s and 70s years old. They're more likely male. This is a veterans hospital. So like many of the veterans uh, hospital U.S. studies, they're, they're male participants. And those with higher rates of atrial tachyarrhythmias had higher rates of underlying cardiovascular risk factors, things like hypertension, coronary artery disease, on the range of 20, 30, 40% on sort of uh, your baseline, uh, depending on the which, which risk factor you looked at. All right, cool. So what were the uh, main results for this study? So just to give you a picture of what the cohort looked like of 5,300 patients in the registry, 8% of them developed atrial fibrillation and 9% developed stroke. Those are sort of your baseline rates, what they look like. Then if you take out the patients, or you sorry, rather you isolate and include the patients who have short-run atrial tachyarrhythmias, you had just under 1,600 patients. That's about 30% of the original registry cohort who developed these, these short runs. They followed up uh, individuals for a median of nine years. And in that time, almost 500 subjects developed a stroke. Um, and so when you're getting down to really what they were looking for, it, those individuals who had short-run atrial tachyarrhythmias um, had a significantly higher stroke rate compared to patients who didn't have that. Um, and your numbers there were 11.4% in patients with uh, arrhythmias versus 8.3%. Uh, who did not have arrhythmias. That finding was significant, and that's, you know, just about a 3% absolute risk difference between the two. Then if you looked at the, you know, if you instead of calling it stroke rates, let's call it rates of atrial fibrillation, the numbers were very similar between both. Then what you do is you take that group of people and you apply your CHADS-VASC score to them, and you find out what's their risk of stroke in the setting of short-run atrial tachyarrhythmias. And you do find a graded increase, sort of a dose-response kind of uh, reaction, with the fact that the more CHADS-VASC uh, risk factors you have, with each additional point on that scale, the more likely you are to have a stroke in the future. So if we look at that in the number of strokes per 100 patient years, with a CHADS-VASC score of zero, that's 0 0.23. So less than a pa if you followed 100 patients, less than one of them in a year would have a stroke. 
And if you had a Chad's VAS score of greater than or equal to five, then you had just close to three per hundred patient years. Um, so it's present. Okay, cool. So do you believe it? Like, what are the limitations here, Karen? Well, yeah, not not entirely. Like, I, I put a main, you know, big asterisk about just sort of applying the, the findings from this broadly and saying, okay, we've we figured it out now. I mean, first and foremost, it's a registry study. So the patients are not enrolled for to answer this question at all. And furthermore, you're not collecting a bunch of information about risk of stroke or atrial fibrillation, for that matter, in your study design because you haven't designed it to answer that question. So you might be missing a bunch of things that you should measure and account for, but you're not in a registry-type design. Okay. So if you had to give our listeners one take-home point, what would you pick? Well, I think that it fits with the broader context of our understanding of this spectrum that I alluded to of atrial arrhythmias and development of atrial fibrillation and stroke. The bottom line is that the individuals who developed atrial fibrillation and stroke were patients that you would expect that would develop atrial fibrillation and stroke. They had hypertension, they had coronary artery disease, they had a, a cardiac environment that was, you know, at risk for it. So I would say my take-home message for this is if you see an individual with multiple atrial ectopy or arrhythmias uh, on some sort of monitoring that you do for them, pay attention to that and follow that patient forward and perform a Holter monitor or some kind of, uh, you know, electrocardiac monitoring in a, in a I don't know, let's call it an annual basis or, or semi-annual basis, some, some time frame that you're just evaluating them and following them along because they're probably the ones that are going to develop atrial fibrillation and then may actually require anticoagulation down the road to reduce stroke. But right now, I don't think that we can actually change our overall practice based on this study. Okay. Last but not least, what do you have for us next? This was a big randomized trial that was published in The Lancet in December of 2007, so-called the TARDIS trial, that looked at antiplatelet strategies in the setting of acute stroke. All right, cool. What was the research question? It's an interesting one, especially in this day and age of anticoagulation and antiplatelets. The question was, does triple antiplatelet therapy in the setting of recent stroke reduce the incidence or severity of stroke or TIA within 90 days of the initial event. All right, and that seems uh, like a pretty important question to ask, but why was it important to you? Well, you know, the main question, what applies to a lot of things, is more better. And, you know, there's been some studies recently, and the most notable one, the CHANCE trial, and some recent meta-analyses that have suggested that actually more intensive therapy using dual antiplatelet therapy over monotherapy was better, was found to be superior. So the natural extension of that question is, well, why don't we throw another agent on? Maybe three is better than two in preventing recurrent stroke. And stroke's a big deal. It's common. It's very life-changing for those who have a significant stroke. And I think it's an important question to answer. All right. And you mentioned that this was a randomized, open-label, blinded endpoint trial. What else do we need to know about the uh, study design? Well, it enrolled individuals who had an ischemic stroke or a transient ischemic attack, and it enrolled them within 48 hours of symptom onset. Importantly, these were obviously not going to be patients with cardioembolic or cryptogenic stroke. We're really looking at atherosclerotic ischemic type strokes, where antiplatelets are going to be your mainstay of therapy. Interestingly, they did include thrombolized patients, 
and there was a time period of about 24 hours where they were not allowed to receive any antiplatelets following that, obviously given the bleeding risk, but it's one of the first big trials that actually includes thrombolyzed patients in, in part of the study design, so that's kind of neat. And overall, the randomization went that patients were to receive a typical loading dose of antiplatelet agents as per standard practice. And then they received 30 days of intensive antiplatelet therapy. And that consisted of either combined aspirin at 75 milligrams and clopidogrel at 75 milligrams and dipyramidal at 200 milligrams twice daily, or what we would call our traditional guideline-based therapy, which was dual antiplatelet aspirin and uh, dipyramidal, this is a European study, or clopidogrel alone as a monotherapy. And the primary outcome overall was the combined incidence uh, and severity of any recurrent stroke. So that was ischemic or hemorrhagic, and they assessed the severity using the modified Rankin scale, which is a very standard validated uh, way of measuring disability following a stroke. All right, and what did the patients look like that made it into this trial? So your typical patient was a 69-year-old uh, male uh, who resided from the UK, and they had traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, etc. 25% were taking aspirin at baseline, so that's kind of neat. 10% actually had had a prior stroke. And in the individual events, 75% of the individuals uh, had stroke as their qualifying event. So 25% TIAs and 75% stroke. And those strokes uh, were mainly you know, major motor symptoms, so sort of MCA territory kind of strokes. 10% uh, of the individuals received thrombolysis. And the median time from antiplatelet administration from the symptom onset was 32 hours remembering that their inclusion criteria was to have it done within 48 hours. Okay. So what were the uh, big results here? So this is a big trial. Just over 3,000 participants in 106 hospitals in four countries between 2009 and 2016. The trial was stopped early by the Data Safety Monitoring Board for lack of signal in efficacy with regards to intensive therapy. And basically, we found that 93 participants, or 6%, versus 105, or 7% in the intensive and guideline therapy arm, uh, developed uh, recurrent stroke. That was an odds ratio of 0.9, uh, but a non-statistically significant difference. So uh, they, And it was not going to separate over time if they continued the trial, so they stopped it. The other point to say is, not unsurprisingly, uh, if you give more medications to thin the blood and work against your platelets, uh, you see more bleeding. Um, and so intensive antiplatelet therapy was associated with uh, more and more severe bleeding with an odds ratio of about 2.5, and that was highly significant. Yeah, that's just badness. And uh, like those curves for harm separated within 14 days, like that is real badness. Um, Yikes. Okay, so what were some limitations here? Well, the primary outcome included hemorrhagic stroke, which I, I don't know if it's a, a limitation. It's just a point to think about. It's very important, obviously, to include this in a safety and generalizability standpoint. But it, unfortunately, if we really wanted to answer the question, do antiplatelets reduce the risk of ischemic stroke? With that as a composite, we don't know for sure up front. The subgroups uh, suggested that mild strokes may actually do better on triple therapy. So, you know, your severe strokes may be more likely to bleed and, and a less severe stroke is less likely to bleed and there might be some benefit to triple therapy there. And I think those are the, really the main outcomes to discuss because, you know, the bleeding risk is just not worth it overall. 
Yeah, that's for sure. It's a good point you bring up. I'm just curious and trying to think if it's standard for in stroke studies for hemorrhagic stroke to be part of the composite endpoint. It's a, that's a very good question and something we're going to have to look into. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. But uh, okay, anyway, well, I'm falling down a rabbit hole. Uh, what's the take-home point here? Well, this is an example of the law of diminishing returns, Mike. I think more is not always better, and we're not getting uh, any bang for our buck, so to speak, by adding a third antiplatelet in individuals with uh, recent cerebral ischemia. So the bottom line here is that dual antiplatelet therapy is safer, and triple therapy does not reduce the risk of recurrent stroke in these individuals. So I don't think, and neither do the authors, that triple antiplatelet therapy should be used in routine clinical practice. Yeah, it seems like an atrocious idea. Um, not the study, just the idea of giving three antiplatelets. <laughs> um, but I've just noted that, you know, we went kind of back and forth. So the first one was like a less is more, you know, adrenal study, you know, you don't need to give steroids, patients are going to do just as well. But then it was like, uh, more diuresis is actually better. And then we went to the atrial tachyarrhythmia study, and that was more atrial tachyarrhythmia is a very bad thing. And then we ended with less is more. Don't give triple therapy to patients with stroke. Excellent observation. <laughs> well, Mike, it's now time for the good stuff part of the show. My favorite part where we're talking about what we're reading about. What is catching your attention this week? Uh, so this week, what's catching my attention is the national shortage of normal saline in the United States. That's right. The combination of sodium and water in a plastic bag is on a, a, a massive, massive um, national shortage. And it's a huge public health issue right now. And um, you sort of wonder, well, how the heck did that happen? It's salt and water in a plastic bag. It, it turns out that 50% of normal saline is manufactured by Baxter, and some of their big plants are in Puerto Rico. So post-hurricane, um, these uh, manufacturing plants, like a lot of Puerto Rico, have been without power and really without proper infrastructure. So uh, unfortunate but interesting story, and as a result, creating quite the uh, public health issue in the U.S. Yeah, very interesting for sure. Uh, well, I was reading about zombie viruses in the thawing permafrost this week. And what the heck? What are you reading? What the is yeah, that comic it, book you're reading? What's going on? Here? Yeah, no, it was an NPR article on uh, on the concept that is climate change putting us at risk for exposure to frozen and preserved pathogens that are from ancient times that are coming to surface now as the as the Arctic uh, warms up. And the example they give in the article is an anthrax outbreak across Siberia in 2016 when there was a huge melt uh, and then a, a massive uh, wave of anthrax spores spread across the tundra that were frozen in the freeze that then thawed. So it is comic book-esque, but, uh, but these, these scientists are concerned that there might be more even unidentified pathogens that could resurface if, if the earth warms up. More apocalyptic talk around climate change. Zombies, specifically. Zombies, absolutely. Always got to be scared of the zombies. Well, Mike, always a pleasure to have you on the show. We look forward to having you back sometime soon, and thanks for joining us again. I'm off to Mexico at the time of this recording. All right, Kieran, you have fun, and um, I'll see you on your back. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You could... 
at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us. 